So um, I want to talk about the constitution of the kingdom, which is the, the Sermon on the Mount. And this is going to be an overview today. So I'm going to be doing a series on this. And I think this is going to be good timing to kind of get us back to how we should even like respond to what's going on in our world. Like all the things, this is going to ground us in the heart of Jesus in the days that we live in. And the, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, some people call it the constitution of, of the kingdom of God. This is how God's kingdom is governed. This is how we live. This is how we govern ourselves, so to speak. And, um, you know, America had the, we uh, have the Constitution of the United States. It was drafted. It's one of the best pieces of um, government created by men, but it's imperfect. And even the Constitution is called a living document uh, because it can be amended. But we have the living word that changes people. The, the, um, the Constitution made by man can't change the hearts of men and women. It, can, it just provides like a wall. It kind of provides barriers, and, that, and that's good. You need those. But in Ezekiel, it says, you know, I'm no longer going to have these barriers around you and these walls. I'm actually going to put my law inside your heart so you can actually live from a place of self-control, not external control, that the kingdom will be inside of you so you can actually take the kingdom wherever you go, that the kingdom's not in my temple, it's not in this land, it's wherever you go because you're my temple. And so, but if you have the kingdom, if you have these, uh, the constitution of the kingdom inside of you, then you're, you're governed by the, the kingdom of heaven everywhere you go, no matter what nation you're in, no matter what environment you're in. So here's a clicker. So this is the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's most comprehensive statement about the believer's role in cooperating with him. So Jesus, when, when he's given us this, he's, he, he's laying out, this is how you can cooperate with me. Jesus doesn't... Um, make us do anything. He, he provided the tree of knowledge of good and evil in a perfect environment so that there would be a choice so that there could be love expressed. Otherwise, it's just robots if somebody's controlling your will. And so within, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls his people to make their primary life goal to walk in perfect obedience by seeking to walk in all the light that the Spirit gives them. And so y'all go to that second slide there. Oh, there we go. There, there we go. So Matthew 5, uh, verse 48 says, you must be perfect or mature as your heavenly father is perfect and mature. How many of y'all have y'all read that before? And you're like, geez. I mean, honestly, that's what I was like, I'm not perfect. But what, what it's talking about is be mature in your obedience just as your father is mature. And what he's saying is, is, is look like your father. Jesus looked like his father, right? And Jesus was mature, and Jesus was perfect in his obedience. We're, we won't be perfect in our obedience, but we are called to live towards that. And so God's looking for uh, mature sons and daughters, but what does mature obedience look like? What, is, what does that mean? 
And mature obedience means you can, you can obey when it's uncomfortable or inconvenient. How many of you know, I'm, I'm, when I grew up and my dad was like, hey, it's 7 o'clock, it's 7 a.m. on Saturday morning. He's like, we got a bunch of chores to do. It's going to take about, it's going to take all day. And I was just like, uh, oh, man, I wanted to play some video games and shoot some basketball. Okay. And, and so I'm just, you know, I'm going, I'm just kind of dragging my feet. We're picking up sticks, things that, and if you've been in my parents' house, that's like the never-ending job because there's trees everywhere, pine trees. And so picking up sticks, mowing the, mowing the grass, whatever it was, and, and, and I, would, I would be slow poking around, dragging my feet, and my dad would say, well, if you want to do what you want to do, just get it done. And so it was let, he, he put the ball on my court, you know, and the further I dragged my feet, the longer it was actually inhibiting me. But when I cooperated, I could actually have more, more time to myself. And so, but now as a dad, as an adult man, I look, when I get to chop some wood, or I, when I cut the grass, after I cut the grass, I, I just stand like victorious over the yard. And I just kind of gaze around, I was like, mm, that looks good. Mm-hmm. And then we got this thing that just picked up the, the grass clippings this past summer. I was like, that, that looks real good. Yeah. Why did we ever cut the grass any other way? You know, you're just standing victorious over your yard work. And I'm like, and it connects me. I, I, I feel more at rest and at peace after I've done a good bit of yard work. Josiah does too. And I know, buddy. I was right there with you years ago. But we're not able to walk in mature, and be, in a mature obedience unless we're walking in the mature one. Jesus is the, he's the mature son. And John, I love that prophetic song that you got today, that we can't bear any fruit apart from him, but we have him. We can't be mature, but we have the mature one. We have the son. We have the firstborn. We have the one who, who showed us what it looks like to, to live with a father. I'm just going to read a few scriptures about mature, being mature. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Listen to this. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the, the fivefold ministry is for the purpose of maturing the body of Christ, that we walk as sons and daughters, that we... To walk as a son and daughter means you know who you are and you know what you can do and you know who your father is. Philippians 3, 14, verses 14 and 15, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So Paul's saying, I'm pressing on to the goal and he says, I forget what was behind and I press on 
towards the goal. And so Paul's defining an aspect of maturity is actually to forget what happened in the past because it's under the blood and press on towards the upward call of Christ Jesus of becoming conformed to his image. That's a sign of maturity, that, you're, that your past is no longer hindering you, that you're forgiven, you understand you're forgiven, you understand it's been dealt with, it's old and you're new. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Colossians 1, 27 through 28, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Jesus calls us to live out the, the eight beatitudes, beatitudes, however you want to pronounce it, doesn't matter to me. And these, you got to think of your life as uh, your, your life with Jesus as a garden. So your intimacy with the Lord is, think of it in terms of taking care of a garden. So one of the things you do with your garden is uh, don't compare your garden to your neighbor's. Because your neighbor might have different soil from you, and they might be planting different seeds. Don't compare your garden to your neighbors. Don't look over the fence. I just learned how to make a, a face with the, the nose over the fence. Anyways, that's way off subject. And, but um, my kids taught me that. And, or who, who taught us? Kyle. Kyle Maloney. Bless Kyle. <laughs> but don't compare your garden to your neighbors. And then you have to re weed your garden. So weeding your garden is, which we're going to go in a little bit more depth, is resisting the temptations of sin. So resisting temptations of sin is weeding. How many of y'all have uh, had a garden before? All right. Jessica and I, when we first got married and we had really little ones, we had a great idea to be, it's like, hey, let's have a huge garden. We don't have anything else to do. Let's have a huge garden. And so... But Jessica was staying home at the time, so she was able to tend it. And so, but when Jessica started working, and I'm, I was already working, and we wanted to keep having a big garden, well, both of us come home from work, and we got a big old pretty okra plant, and there's some big old pretty weeds with it too, ugly weeds. And... And one of the things you realize is, uh, and my dad grew up farming, and, you know, dad, he never talks about their family going on vacation when he was young. Because when you farm, you don't really get to go on vacation. <laughs> because you've got to take care of those crops every day. You have to tend those things every day. And so it's a daily discipline to weed the garden. And, um, and so when we weren't spending as much time, guess what? The garden started looking junky and the fruit started not coming in as, as beautiful and colorful as it once was. So you weed your garden, you catch the foxes. Now, what are foxes? Song of Songs 
says, catch the foxes that are ruining the garden. And Song of Songs is all about an intimate life with Jesus. So if you haven't read that, read, read that book. It's amazing. And uh, Passion Translation does a great job of, you know, kind of deciphering some of the symbolism. So it says, uh, come catch the foxes for us in the garden. Well, foxes sneak in and they can ruin the garden. Now, in my version of the Bible, it says catch the deer that ruined the garden because I had some deer. We had some real pretty strawberries one time and they wanted to get to our, our uh, green peppers. And the peppers were on the other side of the strawberries and it's just like the deer went. <laughs> All the way to the green peppers. Now, I, was, I hadn't been a deer hunter up until that point. I was like, I won't kill me a deer now. That thing got me mad. And I, was, I mean, it just was like, it just looked like it did a jig on my strawberries and didn't even eat any of them. Man, that made me mad. And so, because we're, we're talking about strawberries for a month. We're like, man, those things are coming in good. And then one day, bam. Woo. And so, you got you to gotta catch those foxes that, that destroy your garden. And that's the compromises. That's the little deceptions. You know, foxes are known for their cunning, cleverness, and, and whatnot. It's the little deceptions, the little lies we buy into. It's like, well, if I do this, it's not going to hurt. If I do this, you know, it's just one thing. And it may be even things that are kind of allowable but aren't beneficial. There's things that are allowable but not beneficial. And so you got to catch the foxes. you got to water your garden, which is actually kingdom activities. And we're going to go into this one in a little bit more depth. So I won't explain that one a whole lot. And then you surround the seed with good conditions. So this, the seed in good conditions is time in his presence. It's good company. It's hanging out with giant killers. Put some good conditions around that seed that you're planting. And the main thing is spending time in the Lord. He's the, he is the giant killer. And then understanding that farming involves waiting and trusting. You put a lot of hard work into it, and then there's a point where you weed, you water, you fertilize, you do whatever, and then you just got to wait and watch what the Lord does with it. Haven't met very many atheists that are farmers. So blessed are the poor in spirit. This is, these are the eight flowers in our garden that we cultivate. And you can do the, the eight Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then this one, we, sometimes we forget about this one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others will value you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When I was a brand new Christian, I was reading the Beatitudes, and I was praying through them, and I prayed that one. I said, Lord, let me, let me experience some persecution. And I did. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was good. I can't say it was pleasant, but it was good. And, um, but the Lord says there's blessing in that. So do we trust the Lord when somebody accuses you of evil 
How many times has that has that happened to, to you? Has that happened to Christians that some of you may know that they're being accused of evil? The Lord says, blessed are you because you're standing up for righteousness sake. And so these eight flowers are cultivated as we weed our garden by resisting six common temptations and we water our garden by the five kingdom activities. So we're going to look at these uh, temptations in one second. But Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to make a way to fully express God's original intent. So Jesus is... uh, You know, we don't, we're not saved by works. We're not saved by the things that we do. What God did with the law was the law exposed our inability to keep it apart from Jesus. Jesus came and showed us, I can keep all the law because I'm holy. <laughs> then we become believers. We get the Holy Spirit. And now we have the ability, just like Jesus, to keep the law. Not in and of ourselves, because the flesh is weak to do that, but the spirit is able. All right? And so Jesus didn't come to to get rid of the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to complete it and to to enable us. So prior to the the Ten Commandments, we couldn't keep those. Right? We can't keep those in, in and of ourselves, but Jesus did. So now we have the ability to keep the Ten Commandments. It doesn't nullify those. And just in case you're curious, this, I don't want to spend very much time talking about it, but when Jesus, you know, sometimes uh, Jesus talks about or people talk about that we just need to obey the New Testament and not disregard the Old Testament. Well, there's a lot of things that Jesus upholds in the, in the New Testament. And so we can't just make that a rule. You have to look now, when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, all the, we don't have to make sacrifices again, right? So all the liturgical, uh, Levitical law about sacrifices and, and things of that nature um, are done away with. But the, the moral law hasn't changed. God is the same, right? He hasn't changed. He was the same God in the Old Testament. He's the same God in the New Testament. And Jesus actually, what he does is he actually calls us up higher in the New Testament, which is what the Sermon on the Mount talks about. But you, you may have to come for a couple of weeks in a row to find out about that. And um, so resisting six temptations. We weed our garden by resisting anger, which this is, like I said, this is what Jesus, is, this is how he defines it, the spirit of anger. He says, if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. So Jesus just went. So what the Pharisees were doing in that day is like, I haven't committed murder. He's like, but Jesus was like, but you have hate for your brother, which is where murder originates. So Jesus was getting after the root, not the fruit. You get the root, you you get the fruit as a consequence. Adultery, which is the spirit of immorality. And, um, you know, real quickly, I was in a, I took a class in seminary called the Bible and Moral Issues, and we talked about abortion, divorce, adultery. And we had some guys that were saying, you can't divorce unless somebody physically commits adultery. And I, I just said, well, 
Jesus defined adultery as if you lust at a woman. And so I wasn't trying to give excuses for divorce. I'm just saying, I said, I've had friends whose marriages have been ruined by pornography, but they weren't sleeping with another woman. And I've had, that's multiple times we've seen that. Ask a woman how she feels if her husband's looking at porn. All right, and so, and then whenever Jessica and I were getting married, I had I'd already been with other women before her, because I, before Jesus. And so what I did to Jessica is I, I repented to her for committing adultery because I'd given away what was rightfully belonged to her. And so, and I'd also been involved in, in pornography and, and those types of things. So I was, I, I was involved in adultery, all right? Disregarding the sanctity of marriage, which is disloyalty in uh, relationships. Like, like I said, this is an overview. I'm, tempt, I'm tempted to dive into these because they're so meaty, but I'm gonna resist. Uh, false commitments the spirit of manipulation to promote ourselves, retaliation for personal inconveniences, which is the spirit of revenge, inactivity when mistreated, refusing active love. So then there's five kingdom activities that we pursue to water our garden. These are consistently serving, charitable deeds, giving financially, giving service and or money, praying, blessing our adversaries, and fasting. How many of you bless your adversaries? Because it's when you have one. Sometimes, you know, we may not have opposition, but I'm telling you, that's super powerful when you do that. We've seen adversaries turn into friends when you bless them. And so, uh, anyways... Like I said, I'm trying not to dig into it. So our love and obedience will ultimately be tested and proven. Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone, and these are all, all this, Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have not prophesied in your name, and we've done many wonders, and have we not done many wonders in your name? I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man. The floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall. Everyone who does not do them will be like a foolish man. The floods came, and the winds blew on that house, and it fell. You know, we're talking about repentance and your old life is and think about you know Jesus said if you clean out a house real good you get rid of a demon that lives in the house you clean it out real good but you leave the structure there it says seven demons more powerful than the first will revisit the house so what's the solution destroy the house Jesus is saying the old man needs to be done, you, you don't live that way anymore. That's not your life. Your new house is in the holy of holies and the devil's not gonna chase you in the holy, into the holy of holies. He will not chase you into the, because he will fry. 
he will fry in the Holy of Holies. So he's not going to chase you there. That's our new house. We're the temple. And God's made residence within us. And, you know, David wanted to build a temple for God. And even in the Old Testament, God's like, can you restrict me to a temple? He says, can a house made with human hands, can I abide there? And he's telling David, he's like, listen, I'm bigger than the temple. But because you're my man, I'll be there in the temple. But I also want you to know I'm, all, I'm outside the temple. <laughs> and he was pointing to a greater truth of we're his temple. And then, and so I'm a, I'm a, a carrier of God's presence. I'm his temple individually. And whenever we come together corporately in unity, it's like the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud coming down in our midst when we join together like that. It's just when, when you do personal training, I'm, I might let Tommy teach this part, but when, when you do personal training, say you, say you can bench with both arms a 50-pound dumbbell in each arm. But when you, do, when you do one arm at a time, it's harder. Maybe you can only do 40 with one arm at a time. But, you put, but when you do both arms together, you can, do, you can go heavier. And so it's, it's that same kind of principle when, when God's people come together. It's like, you know, by myself, most I can do is 40 pounds. But when we come together, it's a compound effect. It's like an exponential effect of, of the glory of God. That's why, we get, that's why we gather together. That's why it's important to not forsake the assembling together. So our love and obedience will be tested in order to be proved genuine under pressure. There's all kinds of words about this in the Bible where it says God tests, will test us. He tests our hearts, and, he'll, and his word will test us. So will we persevere even if we face trials? We have storms and pressures of life. There's an eschatological storm, and then, a, and then the final judgment will show forth the truth of our lives. So everything, as we're building up, more and more, the truth is going to be exposed. Darkness will be exposed up until the point where Jesus, uh, we're standing before Jesus on Judgment Day. And so there's two different ways in which people seek Jesus. Some choose the broad way and others the narrow way. Both ways will be tested by pressure in this life when we stand before him. Again, I want to just reiterate that Godly activities do not earn uh, God's love, all right? What you have to look at is what, when I was talking about those five charitable or those five th kingdom activities, it's think about placing your heart before the bonfire of God's presence to warm our stone, coldy, stone and cold hearts, stony, cold hearts. So when we get in, when, because G this is what Jesus is doing. He's inviting us. That's what I'm saying. We, we cooperate with Jesus. We see Hey, orphans and widows, yeah, Jesus is doing that. So you get involved in that, you're gonna, your heart's going to get consumed by his fire. Hey, reaching out to the lost, Jesus is doing that. You want to you cooperate with him? Your heart will get in the bonfire of his presence and, and of his love. All the different things that he, he calls us to do. And by the way, revisiting abortion, the church is very, we can solve this problem. Because one of the arguments of the other side about this was like, well, who's going to adopt these babies? Are you going to adopt them? That's their question. 
And we got to be able to answer them. And so the foster care system is, it's a man-made system. And the church is a blessing to that system. I'm not saying do away with any of that, but it is, it's not perfect by any means, far from it. But if, when we went to a, uh, an adoption conference a few years ago, there was a statistic that was uh, mind-blowing. And said, if one, every church in America, let's go just narrow it down. If every church in Georgia took care of one orphan child, meaning a foster, a foster care kid or adopted one child, how many churches would be left waiting? Like, a th- what was that, Jesse? 15,000. So the, the, there's not an orphan problem, there's a church problem. And, that's, and that would be the same way in every state. So if, Amer- if all, every church in America just adopted one child, the, the crisis would be over. And there would be families left waiting. Churches left waiting. So we could solve this tomorrow if we wanted to. And so... This is what I'm talking about. Like, these are the, the things that we engage. We cooperate with Jesus in doing this. So again, I was, in all honesty, I was a little hesitant in doing an overview because I'm like, Lord, I know I'm going to just want to dive into this, but I think it helps us understand what the Sermon on the Mount is, is doing and what, what God's kingdom is looking like. And these things that got like the Beatitudes and the things that Jesus asked us to do, bless your enemies, these are done by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Your flesh man doesn't want to do that. <laughs> and so when your flesh, I, I encourage you to talk to your flesh man when it wants to rise up and is like, you're dead. Go back to sleep. You're dead. Like you don't have a voice anymore. It's good to talk to that thing in that way. I remember whenever Jessica and I were first married, I, I had this thing in me that was, I, I repented of conditional love. I'd had judgments and unforgiveness about conditional love. And so what, what that would do is it made my I had feelings, and again, why you can't go by feelings, I would have these feelings of inconsistency and how I felt towards Jessica. One day I was like, man, she's pretty, she's smart, she's funny. And then other days like, she ain't pretty, she ain't smart. She, and, that, and you, if you hear me saying she ain't, you know that was crazy. That was devil talk. And so anyway, and, um, but I had, these, I had this thing in my heart. And then when I repented and forgave and, and got some inner healing about that, I felt the freedom of it. And then like a week, and then, but our, fortunately our counselors are wise enough to so say, like, listen, that bitter root's going to try to spring back up. So you got to tell that thing it's dead. So sure enough, uh, we're in week one in the marriage, you know, real convenient time for that to happen. And this conditional love feeling sprung up. Not the truth, a feeling sprung up. I love feelings, but it's not always the truth. And so I'm very emotional. I cry at dog food commercials and whatnot. So you... So this feeling was coming up, and for and I was like, you're dead. Conditional love is dead. Be quiet, be quiet in the name of Jesus. And for two weeks, 
I had this feeling that I had to fight off. But then after two weeks, it was like that, that conditional love thing was like, he ain't giving up. He's squashing me. And so it went away. And then the next time I rose, it lasted a week. Went away. Next time I rose, it lasted three days. Went away. Now, once, I'm telling you, once every four or five years, maybe it sprung up. And then I, I, I recognize it. And in a day, and like, not even a day is gone because I'm like, you're dead. What are you doing here? And so you have to speak to that old man that you're, that's dead. So let's stand up. Well, actually, stay right there. We're going to do communion, okay? And we're doing a little different today. And so maybe if we do five rolls in each aisle, and then we have one up here for the worship team and whatnot. So we're going to do communion today, but you're going to, we're going to put a loaf of bread. Somebody's going to be entrusted, the keeper of the bread, all right? And then you're going to gather around a loaf. And when we break the bread, we're going, everybody's going to have their hand on that bread. And when I tell you to pull it apart, we're going to pull it apart. All right? And I'm going to explain that more. But we're going to pass the loaves out. But we need, we need you to gather around a loaf of bread. And we don't need like 20 people in one group and two in the other. We got to make it even here. Feel, feel free to correct me on anything. But... Um, we're going to take communion today, and the reason why we're, we're doing it this way is just a reminder that Jesus' body was broken for each of us, and then he was resurrected. His body was made whole, but we're the body of Christ, and so when we come together in communion and unity, it's like Jesus comes back together if that, you know, if to make it, and he's manifested in our midst. And so this is the sign of Jesus's body broken for us. And then also us coming together unified as the body of Christ to make him known, but to represent Jesus in this world. Raise your, raise your loaf. If you're a keeper of the bread, y'all go stand somewhere. Like if you have a loaf of bread, Go, um, maybe just let the loaf holders go first. So just go find some space or stand up. And then in a minute, I'm going to have y'all go gather around that person. And I can make more loaf stations. We're looking at like seven-ish around each loaf, five to seven. If you got more than five, more than seven, then find another loaf. If you all get full, I have a, a few more loaves. And you will have kids in your group. So that's um, part of the plan. All right. Everyone can go. All right, gather. Gather around a loaf. Uh, John. John Busby. You'll be, well, you, uh, Play for us while we're up, while we're doing this, and then we'll let you break bread with us whenever we come up here. Thank you. John wants two loaves.
All right. Well, yeah. So when I say we break the bread, everybody will have your fingers on it, and you're just going to pull apart. So everybody in the opposite direction now, none of y'all get too, um, too strong with it, all right? And jerk it out of everybody's hands, but you're just going to tear a piece. So I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you for the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And just as Jesus' body was broken, that, that we may be unified and made one a mature man in him. We thank you that we get to represent Jesus in the world, and that as he is, so are we in this world. Jesus, we thank you for your, your body that was broken, and we honor you today. So break the bread and pull it apart now. So now, talking with my mouth full, forgotten. Anyway, excuse me. So let's do this. We're gonna have this group actually go first, and y'all gonna do a circle. Sorry, last shall be first, and, and first shall be last. But y'all gonna come, make a circle, loop around, grab a drink, and then just return to your your spot. Okay. So everybody, just start following this group. Just form your groups again once you grab your juice. So this morning, I felt like while we were doing communion that uh, the Lord wanted to heal people phys you know, physically. It could be, I mean, he, or however he wants, you know, if it's your, your heart. But just that uh, if you need healing, that the Lord wants to heal you. And so just raise your hand. You can stay in your group. Just raise your hand. It's like, I need, I need physical healing. Okay. 
And so we just believe that as we take that the Spirit of the Lord, is, He's in this type of, He's in this thing. He's in communion. And He'll heal us. So Lord, we receive your healing because it's by the, the blood of Jesus. It's by His stripes. It's by His broken body that we are healed. So Lord, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you that it cleanses us from all unrighteousness, washes us white as snow, cleanses our conscience, makes us new makes us innocent, infants in evil, and mature in our thinking. So, Lord, we thank you. We take this, this cup. We remember your blood on our behalf, and we drink it. Amen. So if, you, if you're able to test out your healing, test it out, and then let us know. So you can just stay right where you are. If you want to, we'll have our ministry team over here on the side for any, if you want any further ministry. Um, but y'all are free to go. We love you guys. If you'll help us break down uh, the, the chairs and carpet, that'd be a big help. And bless you guys. We love you. We'll see you next time.